Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast. I'm Tian and Duyeb, mainly because everyone else was busy. I did try. I really, really did try. This is somehow episode 6 already. I know, right? It's almost as if politics keeps happening and I have really nothing else to do with my life than look on Twitter and news pages. Thank you so much for downloading and I presume listening to this podcast. Um, I guess there is a chance that you just play it to foxes in your garden to drive them away or use it as some sort of interrogation torture. But hopefully you're just sort of tuning in every week with the vague hope that there'll be something to laugh about in amongst all the inevitable collapse of a democratic society. (laughs) Comedy. Um, I know I say this every week, but... I mean, I I still think this is better than me saying it's all because of this mess we were left in or fixing the roof while the sun is shining, which, I mean, we're in the UK. You have about two days a year to fix the roof then and the people doing it are probably EU migrants on less than living wage, so I'm really not sure why George Osborne keeps repeating it. At least stick some solar panels up while you're up there. You know, do something useful. Now, anyway, so I know I say this every week and I repeat this a lot, but if you do have any comments, thoughts, or people you'd like me to try and interview for this show, please do let me know. Also, a few extra reviews on iTunes wouldn't go amiss. Or amiss. Take that, sexism. On this week's show, there's some stuff on Europe. Quill surprise! I bet you didn't see that coming. Also, I'm going to be looking at unemployment levels, costly benefit hotlines, and I'm going to be talking to the City Metric editor and New Statesman journalist, John Ellidge, on how there's actually more than one housing crisis. You know, just to sort of cheer you up. But first... Headline. Ian Duncan Smith, Britain's top evil naked mole impersonator, is refusing to set up a free phone number for people to call to claim their benefits. Instead, people who are already in financial difficulties will have to pay up to 45p a minute in order to get welfare money to survive on. Joseph Heller was quoted as saying, Even I couldn't have come up with that one! The DWP say that most benefit claimants will get their claims online anyway, where there's no cost to do it but that assumes that those people have the internet in the first place. 
Almost 6 million adults in the UK say they've never ever been online, which is why we can tweet what we want about them. Ha! I, I mean, hmm. Looking into it though, and I'm not even the last person that wants to defend the DWP, I'd be at least several people after that. If you do look into it, you would find that Ofcom have said that 0345 numbers, the type that the DWP would use for benefit claimant hotlines, can't charge more than a normal phone number. And companies aren't allowed to profit from any of the charges. So really, it's only 45p per minute if you have a terrible phone provider. Saying that, it should just be an 0800 free phone number to begin with, so that there's no charges at all, especially if you're struggling to afford living day-to-day -day life in the first place. But doing something like that would require Ian Duncan Smith to have any sort of connection with reality at all, let alone a phone one, so it's unlikely to happen. The high-precision British missiles that we were told would make a meaningful difference to the battle against ISIS haven't yet killed or injured even one ISIS fighter. Well done, everyone. So it seems the missiles are called brimstone, not because they're the smell of the devil, but rather because something about the way we were being sold them smelled rather odd. So it puts into question, yet again, why is the UK taking part in all of this, other than because, well, everyone else was having a go and we had some bombs left over, so... Though at the cost of £100,000 per missile, I suppose they are making a meaningful difference to the weapons industry now. At least they can have that 15th Christmas due this year. Meanwhile, the US and Russia have brokered a deal for a ceasefire in Syria this coming weekend. Though that doesn't include ISIS. And President Assad said, a ceasefire doesn't mean parties stop using weapons. Okay buddy, is that in the same way that Bashir al-Assad doesn't mean murdering dictator, yeah? Despite completely misunderstanding how the meanings of words work, Assad did say that he was up for a ceasefire as long as the terrorists don't exploit it. So ISIS, no ultimate frisbee championships just because you got a day off lads, eh? The Liberal Democrats had the sort of 2015 election failure that led them to being, well, sort of less a political party and more an awkward political gathering where people are too polite to leave. A report into why this happened said it was all due to the perfect storm of a well-funded Tory campaign, weak Labour performances and fears of the SNP. All of which is not wrong, but it's rare that weather people can see a perfect storm coming so far off because an area of high tension is caused by a wet drip backing down on a tonne of promises they'd made. Still, Tim Farron, who has an unfeasibly small face, I mean look at it, it's like someone built a bigger fake head around a scary child's eyes. So yeah, sorry, Tim Farron, he said that this report was about learning from the mistakes that they've made. So hopefully it'll just be a matter of time before Tim leads the Lib Dems successfully back from not being liked at all to just not being noticed very often instead. Living somewhere is nice, isn't it? I mean, it's definitely on my list of privileges that I enjoy the most, along with potato waffles and flossing every few months just to see what my teeth look like with blood on them. The housing situation in the UK is not in a happy place at the moment, which is a shame as that's mainly what a lot of people would like a home to be. The Council of Mortgage Lenders announced today that many homeowners, of the few that can afford to buy a house or flat in the first place, are taking out longer than 25-year loans. 
This is leading to further debt for them and ultimately the sort of situation that could possibly lead to another financial crash like the one Labour left us in. I can't believe how even in opposition they're managing to control the entire housing market, eh? Incredible. There's been a huge increase in renting and with MPs deciding landlords don't need to even make their homes fit for human habitation, you start to wonder if we should all just relearn to live in caves or the sea. So this week I had a chat with John Ellidge, the editor of the New Statesman's sister website City Metric and the host of its new podcast Skylines. John knows more about UK homes than the most avid Cumberbatch fan and explained all about, well, how bleak it is for everyone wanting to live anywhere. Fun! I should say that this interview was done at 10am, which means I was half alive and John had a bad cold too, which I doubt you'll notice, but if you do, I think it just makes him sound more jazzy. It was recently reported that, that Londoners need to have an average salary of about £140,000 a year just to be able to afford a flat in London. Um, how long have we got before normal people are going to be forced out of cities in the UK? Is that what's going to happen? Um, there is a danger in thinking it's cities en masse. Um, it, it, it's not quite true that the housing problem is only a London problem, but it's certainly, you know, it's different orders of magnitude down here. I was looking um, on on Zoopla yesterday for, for a thing I'm doing uh, at, at prices in Manchester. In Manchester, you can still get a, de- a, a decent one bed flat in the centre of town for like 90 grand. And that's, you know, that's the heart of Northern powerhouse. That's a boom town. So it's it's there. There are problems with the housing market in the rest of the country. And but that's often more about sort of, you know, unregulated rental properties and, and, and poor quality homes and so on. The price problem is specific to London and a few of its sort of satellites like Oxford and Cambridge. Um, um, that most of the southeast of England, really, is where is is where the prices are kind of gone crazy. Um so it's it's not like there's a certain point coming where it will be impossible for for normal people to live in London. It's just that what will happen is firstly most of them will be paying enormous amounts of rent to do it rather than owning, and those who can buy um, are pro- probably fewer of them will be like on you know investment banker salaries than are people who are lucky enough to have wealthy and generous parents who can bung them 50 grand to get them on the ladder yeah sure sure yeah that's uh, that's how the couple of my friends have managed it but no one else i know um so just uh, that's quite interesting that you said there that it's it's not a city problem it's more a southern problem um which is something i've heard before so is that why people aren't particularly worried about the housing crisis because a large percentage or, or it doesn't seem to be being tackled properly because a large percentage of the country isn't uh, having a housing crisis i think that's certainly a factor yeah um I mean, it's it's actually. I really thought last year's election would be a housing election. I spent a lot of time sort of writing about it and talking to people, and I, I got completely sucked into this zone where I thought housing was going to be one of the big issues, and I was totally deluding myself. It was like it, it never rose above. I think it was like sick for voters' priority list. Really? Now that is actually quite high, given it's not ranked at all for you know twenty years or more. Right. So the fact we were talking about it at all and that it was it was even registering was progress in a way. But it was nowhere near, you know, the economy or the NHS or immigration. And I think a lot of that is precisely this, because in large chunks of the country, housing is still affordable. 
and and the problem we often talk about in the media is specifically uh, a London and uh, sort of London suburbia problem. Um, the reason I think that's happened now, and it didn't happen ten years ago, is because within the last probably only about the last three years, we've got to the point where there are people in prominent positions in public life, like, you know, um, successful uh, newspaper columnists or, or you know, um, or even politicians now, and they're starting to get MPs who can't buy, um, who are on pretty good salaries and who have a platform, but who still can't get on the housing ladder. Like, we have had a, 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 we've had a sort of house price crisis brewing for, for 10, 15 years, the only reason we've started talking about it is because the people it's affecting now are the people who have a platform where they can talk about it. Right. Right. And of course, these are people that definitely won't be moving to Manchester, etc., uh, because their work and, and uh, you know, or their base is still in London. Yeah. I mean, I mean, one of the many root causes of this problem is that so much of the British economy is focused on London. Um, I, I kind of think we actually have... We have a housing crisis in one half of the country and we have a jobs crisis in the other half. And right. those are actually two sides of the same coin. It's like the parts of the country where you can buy a home are generally places where it's not like there aren't good jobs there, but they're thinner on the ground. Um, and if, you, if you're 22 starting out in life and you want to sort of buy a home and build a career, it's kind of difficult to find somewhere where you're going to be able to have both of those things. Right. And I presume in, in some ways, that if, you, if there's a lack of jobs, then even though houses are affordable, people are still struggling to buy them because it's all kind of relative, is it? If they haven't got the, the deposits for affordable, for actually affordable houses, whereas down here where they, or in London where the house prices are over the top, but the jobs aren't quite compensating for it in the first place. So Yeah, I mean, what I've, what I've found is, like I've kind of in, in mentioned in passing in a column, oh, obviously the housing crisis is, is primarily a London crisis. And I got reams of abuse from from people elsewhere in the country going, are you crazy? Have you seen what the prices are like up here? And, you know, the, the prices of the sort that you think, wow, that's amazing. You can get a home for 100 grand. But <laughs> yeah. if, if, if you're sort of bumping along on sort of 12 grand a year or something, which, you know, in parts of the country, that's not a terrible salary. Yeah. Um, then that's still far beyond the reach of, of where you're going to get to anytime soon. Yeah, because I, I I was reading that the average house prices have risen to is it like two hundred eighty eight thousand or something across the UK, but that's primarily because South of England has boosted them all up by a lot. So it really is all being determined by this this part of the country. Yeah, I mean, when people talk about average house prices, they, what they mean is the mean house price, where you just sort of add all the costs up and then divide by the number of homes there are. Sure, um, I, I was going to say a lot of house prices seem quite mean to me, but that's. Yeah. <laughs> But, but yeah, that's, that is a, as a statistical measure that kind of distorts the figures because it means that a few really expensive homes or relatively few um, will make the average look much higher than it is. In some ways, it might be more useful to look at a different measure called the median where you just kind of look at what sort of the middle house and the price distribution is. But I don't think anyone's done that. So. Right. Right. OK. That's, so that's, that's a bit of advice for you, John, that they should yeah. start doing go, that. Go and do your maths differently. There you right. go. <laughs> I'll send that out for you. Um, so... Because there's there's lots of schemes, you know. There's the right to buy scheme, for example. And that is that actually helping anyone? Is that going to help? Because I've heard a lot of sort of differing views as to as to what that's going to do, both for people and for the housing market. Is it a useful policy? Um, there the, there are there are as you say several schemes. The right to buy is 
uh, was a Thatcher-era scheme under which council tenants could buy their homes at a massive discount. Um, and basically, that was uh, the, the purpose of that was to turn, let's be honest about this, it was to turn people who had an interest in voting for left-wing parties into people who had an interest in voting for right-wing parties. Right, right, political right. move. Um, this government has brought that back. Well, the, 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 well, it's never really gone away, but they've found ways of extending it and so, tr are trying to find ways of extending it to housing association tenants too, which is a slightly odd thing to do because it means they're now effectively trying to privatise things that the government doesn't actually own, but leave that aside. Right. Um, um, it's... It's a great policy if you're if you're on the right side of, of that one. If you're if you're suddenly getting opportunity to buy uh, a three hundred thousand pound flat for one hundred and fifty thousand pounds or whatever it is, it's fantastic. But there are a number of problems with it. One of which is that because it's effectively subsidising sales, it's spending money that we don't really have on bungs for a relatively small number of voters. Um, which is, you know, that's great if you're one of those voters. Mm. As a taxpayer, I find that pretty irritating. Yeah. Um, but the bigger problem is it just it's just misdiagnosing the problem. The reason that we have a housing crisis in, in much of the country is because we haven't built enough homes. And we haven't built enough homes over a period of, of 30 or 40 years now. Um, if we're going to bring prices down and, and make it sustainable, what we really need to do is just to build more. Um, I mean, there are other things we can do as well, such as bursting the buy-to-let bubble and so on. But whatever we do, we do need to build more because the population has grown quite a lot. Sure. Stuff like right to buy or, or uh, a, a, a not similar but kind of similar policy, help to buy, which is aimed at um, basically that will be sort of young uh, voters who are trying to get on the housing ladder and it subsidises them to buy their first home. Um, the the problem with both these is they're focusing on increasing home ownership in very small groups. Um, they don't address the systemic problem, which is that we just do not have enough homes in the places that people want to live. Right. Yeah, because uh, some of right to buy involving that is selling off some of the social housing that's left, isn't it? It is. Yeah, and that's. I mean, there's there's a whole sort of different side to this, which is that. I think because of the financialization of housing, because we've come to see, as a, as a country rather than individually, we've come to see homes not as vital infrastructure or public service or anything. We just see them as, you know, they're, they're your pension. They're, they're your main store of wealth. Um, one of the side effects of this is that we no longer have a language for talking about the right to live in a place that you cannot afford to live in. So, so in a lot of the debate around um, the sale of council housing in, in sort of plush parts of inner London, it's like, well, I can't afford to live there. Why should these people be subsidised by the state to live there? Right. Um, the, now, on one way, in one way, that's actually a difficult argument to refute because, I mean, why should we be subsidising one particular group at the expense of others? But on the other hand, a city like London needs all sorts of people to function. Like at, at the most basic level, the 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 sort of shiny skyscrapers in the city in Canary Wharf need people who will come in at five o'clock every morning and clean them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that means you kind of need those people to be able to access them at five o'clock in the morning. They can't all come in from like Stoke on Trent or something. Um, so even if you're thinking in purely uh, slightly cynical utilitarian terms. 
um, there is a strong argument that actually we do need some kind of subsidised housing for, for, for poorer people. Um, and that's just not on the agenda at all. That's being squeezed out by, by most government policies for ideological reasons, because they don't believe that the state should be in the business of providing housing. They think that the market should be doing that. But as you say, yeah, even with, I mean, that's not very forward planning, is it? Because as you say, even if that's either, they're the, they're, sorry, even if that's their ideology, it's going to come and hit them in the face at some point when they haven't got anyone to do all the kind of menial tasks or other work that needs to be doing in London. Yeah, and the assumption is that the market will provide, because that's the assumption of a lot of um, government policy over a period of decades. The problem is we don't actually have a free market in housing because we don't have a free market in land. There's all sorts of restrictions on, on where you can build and what you can build there, of which the most prominent is the green belt. Um, and that means that one of the reasons it's so difficult to build the houses we need in and around London is we literally do not have space for them. Um, there, there are bits of what's called brownfield land that's mainly sort of ex-industrial um, floodplains like a, a Barking Reach. Um, well, that's been talked about as a major housing development for years, but it hasn't come off because it will cost so much money to clean that up and make it a nice place to live that nobody can make a profit building housing there. Right. right. So the housing has not got built. Um, that so that there are there aren't many choices as to where we could build all the sort of we're meant to be building fifty thousand homes a year in London. We're not even close to that. We're on about eighteen thousand. I think. Really, is that low? It is. It's yeah. It's less than half. Nationwide, the stats I've seen suggest we need about two hundred fifty thousand a year. We're at about one hundred forty thousand. Um, so wow. yeah, the the problem the problem is going to get worse. Yeah, because I, mean, I think it was at Prime Minister's questions the other week when Cameron said again, "Oh, we've built way more houses than Labour did," but it's still not very many, is it? Even yeah, if that's true. Um, I mean, I think he was slightly massaging the figures. It's certainly up on where we were in the later years of the Labour government, but that was that was the middle of you know the biggest financial crash in eighty years. So what do you sure. expect? Um, I think actually the. The, the, so the peak of house building in recent years was about 2005, 2006, which was under Labour. Um, even then, I'm, I'm slightly reaching for the figures, I think these are right. Even then, we were building about 220,000 a year. So, yes. you know, when there was, we were in the middle of another housing boom, the economy was, was going great guns, there was not a cloud in the sky, we still were not building enough homes to provide for our people. Sure. And, 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 and now of this not enough amount that we're building, what, how much did you say we're building a year now? Was... Um, I, it was either 2013 or 2014 figures were about 130, 140,000. Right. And then, and then a, there's only a certain percentage of those as well that will be affordable housing, I presume. Yeah. Is that? I mean, I, I, I couldn't tell you what those figures are, but yeah. Um, because the government, through, through its arms, sort of local authorities or whatever, doesn't really build that many homes anymore. Um, that's that's the difference actually. That's what's when we did used to build significant numbers of homes or much bigger numbers of homes. It was because the government was building them um, through local authorities or yeah, mostly through council housing. We don't really do that anymore. Um, so if you look at there, there is a chart that kind of goes around uh, the internet quite a lot um, that shows different types of housing and how the amount of them has changed over time since the war. And you look at this chart and you can instantly see that the reason we've stopped building in the numbers we need is because we just don't build council housing anymore. Right. 
because because the the private sector has continued to build it about the rate it always has. It's just that other element that's gone. Back to John in a minute, but first, Europe, Europe, Europe. My wrong. No, Europe. The EU referendum is going to be in the news pretty much until it happens. And probably after that. And probably until everyone gets so bored that many people refuse to even use the letters EU ever again, which consequently wipes out the word euthanasia and confuses everyone. If you haven't heard last week's episode yet, I spoke to John Worth, who gave us some actual information about what the European Union is, what it does, and what wine goes best with it. Okay, well, not the last one, but I presume it's something with a very dividing taste that some really like, others hate, and others find even less interesting than the list of Britain's least favourite car parks read by Adrian Childs. But John was incredibly interesting, and it's very, very worth going back and having a listen. But I didn't want to bother John by interviewing him every week until June the 23rd, plus I think he has actual work to do. So instead, I thought... Each show, until June 23rd, I'll be summarising some of the most important EU issues in a new section called... With or without EU With or without EU That is the new With or Without EU jingle. I hope you like it. I'm very proud. Uh, There is going to be a lot of EU stuff between now and June 23rd, so I thought I'd use my complete lack of musical ability to do something very special for it. If you have more skills on the accordion app on your keyboard than I do, then please feel free to email better jingles to me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com and I'll happily use those instead of my horrible, horrible voice. So, a quick run-through of this week's EU noise. The EU referendum has now been set for June the 23rd, which is the same weekend as Glastonbury, meaning tens of festival revellers are upset because it means they may have to do the ancient archaic method of posting a vote involving using a pen and paper that they'll probably have to borrow from a museum or something. Or, you know, they probably just won't bother voting at all, much like most of the population not going to Glastonbury anyway. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. There have been cries of conspiracy, as though the government have planned this specifically as if to ensure that anyone who actually likes Coldplay doesn't get a vote, something that, to be honest, I'm not entirely opposed to. Tory MP Steve Baker said that there is never the competency or secrecy necessary to run a conspiracy by the state, which is exactly the sort of thing they would say if there was. I cry shenanigans. The biggest EU hee-haw this week, though, was the nightmare of London Boris Johnson saying that he'd be backing leaving the EU. This came as a surprise to most people because only a couple of weeks ago, when asked, would you not regret it if Great Britain left the EU, the man who looks like he's been bitten by a radioactive pile of shitty straw answered, my ideal world is, we're there, we're in the EU, trying to make it better. Which isn't the sort of thing you'd say if you then wanted to up and leave the thing. It seems far more likely that this is Boris's attempt to make a bid for Conservative leadership, with David Cameron not running for election again. <laughs> I tell you, nothing gains fans and supporters like saying you'd be the ideal leader of a country because you're willing to change your opinions based on ill-thought-through PR attempts, eh? <laughs> oh no, wait, that's the, that's the American elections I'm thinking of. Yeah. Thing is, will Boris changing his stance on the EU actually affect anyone's voting decisions anyway? I mean, bear in mind that this is the man who once said that fire response times would stay exactly the same even if he closed 10 London fire stations and got rid of 13 fire engines. Which is one hell of a gamble for someone with such dry, hay-like hair. Boris's reasons were that, well, there's less fire in London now than there was in the 90s, because you can obviously do supply and demand on a fire, you idiot. Since closing the stations, unsurprisingly, fire response times all across London have increased. Well done, everyone. So, leaving the EU is safer for the UK, is it, Boris? I guess we'll just have to take your word for it, mate, based on your previous record. Personally, I'd prefer if he just restarted his Boris Island idea and lived on that by himself, and that island by itself can leave the EU. He can have all his own laws there as well, and you know, that allow him to just rugby tackle children at his whim and change words like affordable to somehow mean unaffordable. Boris joins Nigel Farage, George Galloway, Michael Gove and Ian Duncan Smith on either the Leave EU campaign or some sort of new Hammer Horror film franchise. I'm really not sure. Boris had mentioned that perhaps there should be two referendums with the aim of getting a better negotiation before a second vote. While addressing the House of Commons today, David Cameron shat all over this with a real-life subtweet that he wouldn't quote the irony of a vote to leave to remain. Which is odd coming from a man who keeps saying that he wants his EU deal to end something-for-nothing culture despite it protecting City of London tax havens. The rest of Dave Cameron's speech tried to persuade MPs that Europe gives even an ounce of a turn about the UK having a tantrum. It was full of boring quotes like the Norwegian Conservative Nikolai Astrup saying, if you want to run Europe, you must be in Europe. If you want to be run in by Europe, feel free to join Norway in the European economic area. 
Nobody seemed to want to point out that the idea of running Europe was never on the cards in the first place, and it's those sorts of megalomaniac notions that caused the EU to be formed in the beginning. Jeremy Corbyn responded to Cameron's speech with his own speech that no one really cared about and made us all wonder why he bothered. And ultimately, everyone realised that we have four more months of this crap and it's going to be horrible. Several MPs have described the whole thing already as a pantomime, and let me tell you, I too can't wait for it to be behind us all. And now back to John. Because there are, I mean, I, I remember Cameron was saying that they're going to put money into estate regeneration and things like that, but that's, I'm guessing, not going to be anywhere near enough of a solution. Um, I mean, firstly, the, the figure they're talking about is 140 million pounds, which is you know, that's, that's quite a lot of money. I'd quite, I'd, I'd be yeah. happy. 140 million pounds. <laughs> um, except when you're talking about major regeneration schemes, actually, it's not a lot of money, and they're also talking about regenerating. 100 estates, so that's 1.4 million per estate. Right, which now, is not very you, much at all. Yeah. yeah, and also you've got to remember that a lot of these estates will be in London, where it will, you know, spending 1.4 million on a regenerating estate in London, if you're talking about knocking it down and starting again, um, you have to buy out the leaseholders who, who actually own their flats on that estate, you know, the people who, who now have the homes that were once bought out and the right to buy. Um, you have to buy them out before you can demolish their flat. You've got a budget of 1.4 million. Well, that's probably four or five flats on an estate. You, you, right. th- you're not going to get anywhere with 140 million in the hundreds of states. It's nothing. Um, the reason, though, I think they're, ta- they're going down this route is because I, I was talking a, a moment ago about the lack of land for building because we kind of we have this thing called the Green Belt where we just say, mm. you know, this far and no further, we will not build on this farm. Um, so to, to solve the housing crisis, we either have to flex those rules and start building on places we've never built before, or we have to start demolishing bits of cities and rebuilding them at higher densities. Right. Sort of like Tokyo kind of style. I I think when you're talking about higher densities, people do tend to leap to these, um, these sort of Asian and North American cities full of skyscrapers. That's a bit misleading. London is actually incredibly low density as major cities go. Right. If you go to somewhere like Paris or Vienna where you, you all around those places, you do not feel the walls closing in on you, but they have a much higher population density than London because the standard height of buildings there will be five or six stories as opposed to two or three. Right, okay. We could totally follow that pattern, but to do that, we'd have to start knocking stuff down. Right. And that's quite difficult because all the stuff, not all of it, but a lot of it is privately owned and, you, and compulsory purchase law is not that strong. And also it's like if you think it's going to be hard to persuade people to put up with building new homes on that farm just in the Greenbelt, imagine how hard it's going to be to persuade them to let you knock down their entire street and rebuild. It's, yeah. just, it's politically toxic. Um, my reading of the estate regeneration stuff is that it's the least toxic way they could find of doing that. Well, they were thinking, well, some of these estates are a bit horrible looking not, you know, even if they, they do have their supporters, obviously a lot of the people who live there will love them very much, but politically it's still easier to talk about let's demolish a sink estate and build nice new streets there than it is to say, let's start knocking down the, the terraced houses of Chelsea. Sure. Yeah, of course. But, it, but as you say, it's overall a 
a hollow policy. I guess they'll all get a bit of a paint job or something in the yeah. in the least. But it's not. I really mean, yeah, that's. I mean, that's yeah. that's what I suspect will happen. Is actually we won't go very far with it at all, and it will just end up being used to to clean up a few estates. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I suppose that they might be able to find enough money to to cram a few extra tower blocks in on some of the the gaps in these places. But I don't think it's going to be a game changer at all. So, I mean, what's uh, from what you were just saying, it does sound very bleak. There's really not a, an easy solution to any of this. Um, I'm, gu- I'm guessing the Greenbelt way is going to be the best way for things to go. But then, because wasn't the Greenbelt created for environmental purposes as well? Or is that a fallacy? Am I making that up? That's, I, I think it was, I, I don't know if that was the original intent. It's certainly been promoted by people like the, the campaign for the protection of rural England as if it has an environmental use. Um, it's not clear that it does, firstly because one of the things that happens when you have a green belt is development jumps over it. So it's quite difficult to build. Like I grew up in, in Romford, the sort of Essex edge of oh, London, yeah. um, and there's like loads of it's quite un- a scrubby, unpleasant, empty space up there that you can't touch because it's green belt. Right. Um, you go 10, 15 miles further out, uh, you get to Little Essex towns where it is still possible to build. So that the housing demand for that area is largely being met further out into Essex. Um, so, but these guys often still have to commute into London for work. So sure. it just it means you're actually sort of sending people further distances every day, which is not great from a carbon footprint point of view. Um, but also, like, Greenbelt is a, is a wonderful piece of branding because you say Greenbelt, people have this vision of, you know, the Chilterns or the, the North. That was exactly what I had in my brain. Yeah, that was yeah. It. it's a Greenbelt. It sounds lovely. Yeah, and bits of it, bits of it, I like that. Bits of it are very nice. Um, bits of it aren't. Bits of it are, a lot of it is farmland, which is actually often not very environmentally friendly because it's doused in chemicals most of the time. Um, so so actually it's terrible for sort of birds and insects and so on. Um a lot of it is golf courses and pony clubs. Right. Uh, the bit that I personally am obsessed with, as, as I say, I grew up in Romford. There is, if if you drive down the A12 um, from Romford, heading into town, before you get to, to Gans Hill and Ilford, um, there is a, a brief gap in the landscape in which there is a potato farm. <laughs> right. This potato farm is about a five-minute walk from the central line. It will be about a ten-minute walk from Crossrail. It is on the A12. It's got really great transport links, and we are growing potatoes there. And it just seems absolutely crazy to me. It's like, apart from the it's next to the A12. What, what kind of chemicals is going on these potatoes just from the pollution? But, yeah, okay. yeah, I don't know anyone that would want to eat those. No, I mean it's like, yeah. So, so this is this is the kind of stuff we're we're talking about here. And also, there's also stuff like there's quarries, there's there's um, desolate factory land, there's all sorts of quite unpleasant places that you do not look at and think these are the green and pleasant fields of England. But because it's called the Green Belt, yeah. if you talk about building on the Green Belt, people think you're talking about concreting over Tunbridge Wells or something. So yeah. we need to sort of rename it to something, the Grim, Grim Potato Belt or something that will yeah. <laughs> persuade people to use it properly. Yeah, we need, we need, to, we need to rebrand it. But uh, yeah. I, I, I can't see us winning that one. I mean, yeah, so. I, kind of, I kind of think the Green Belt is, is our best shot here because it's less politically painful than demolishing large chunks of London and starting again. Yeah. Um, but I don't think it's that politically realistic either. I think what's probably actually going to happen is it's going to get worse. Oh, good. Good. That's nice. Yeah. 
good. That's uh, <laughs> well. Um, I can't remember which article it was, but there was a, an article that was saying also another thing that would be useful is if we, you know, stopped being so obsessed by buying a place. There's lots of countries in Europe that um, where people happily rent for the whole of their lives, but uh, that's surely a problem here because renting is also incredibly expensive. Um, and the the government recently brought in that policy, didn't they, where landlords don't need to make their homes fit for human habitation, which. I think was the worst sounding policy I've ever heard of. You would think that, yeah, I mean, there was a Tory MP, Philip Davis, going around sort of enthusiastically promoting this policy that landlords shouldn't have to. You would think that would be basic. You would think that would be the, the, the one requirement on a home before you rented it out was that people could actually bloody live in it. But yeah, yeah. Well, there's very few people I think are renting for their pets or you know for <laughs> for, for plant life rest collection. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah I mean. There is, in theory, no problem with the idea of being a long-term renter. I mean, there might be problems down the line because, you know, to an extent, homes double as pensions and funding for for retirement and medical care and so on. Um, And that's something that the the millennial generation are probably not going to have the way things are going. So it's not clear where that's going to end up in 50 years. But but never mind that for the moment. in principle, there is absolutely nothing wrong with the German model in which people uh, rent for long periods and only buy quite late in life, if at all. Mm. The reason it's not great in the current British context is because tenants have really quite appalling rights. Um, like, I mean, the, the not fit for human habitation thing is an extreme example, but it's only recently there were any moves to prevent what are known as revenge evictions where people can be turfed out for complaining that the boiler is gone or something. Right. Um, But also, it's just, there's no no security in it. I mean, it's one thing if you're 22, um, you know, um, and living in a rental property, you can kind of cope with moving every six months to a year. It's a pain, but you can do it. Um, If you're pushing 40 and you've got two kids and those kids are in school, um, it's going to, and that's increasingly the world we're living in, there's going to be other effects of, of, being stuck in rented accommodation and the insecurity of it that sure. we've not really factored in. Um, yeah, so so I, I think, like, to, to make it viable for the long term, we would need to reform the rental sector to put slightly stronger rules on landlords to, in terms of actually sort of keeping up the properties. Um, and also we probably need to look at longer tenancies and just, just more predictability of where you're going to be living. I mean, like, the, the problem is that you can be... Even if you've got a nice landlord, you can be forced out at relatively short notice, yeah. um, and that's that's not great if you're if you've got a five year old, you know. So sure, sure. So that's uh, good. It looks like there's no solution to the building houses problem, and uh, renting is terrifying as well. <laughs> this, is, this is good. This is good for everyone. Obviously, um, we're all going to have to get very good at building lego houses or something like that i presume I mean, yeah i mean the, the the one thing that does make me feel positive is like we were talking earlier about um housing failing to dominate the last election but it was a significant issue it was talked about a reasonable amount um and that's it's only going to become more prominent like ownership rates are continuing to fall despite the government's best efforts more and more people are stuck in in shitty rental accommodation um, and you know, it's there will come a point at which 
fewer than half of households are owner occupied. We're still a way off that. We're on about sixty five percent at the moment, down down by about ten percent from the high point. But um, that will come at which point all bets are off, um, right. and suddenly it becomes politically better to do things for tenants than to do them for landlords. Right. So roll on twenty twenty. Yeah, I mean, I, I fear it's twenty twenty five. To be honest, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. I think you're. But, you're but, but right. yeah, that, that, it's a long way off, but it will happen. Okay, well, last question for you then. Um, I uh, sometimes when I'm doing stand up, I joke that we shouldn't call it a housing bubble because bubbles are meant to be fun. Um, what would you uh, rename it as? I don't know. I'm now. I'm now thinking about fun bubbles in history, like the South Sea bubble and the Dutch tulip bubble. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, I don't think I've got a funny answer. I'm sorry. That's all right. I, don't like, I just, I, I, I just tend to call it the housing crisis, um, which I think is a little bit of an oversimplification because actually it's about eight different housing crises that sort of overlap and feed off each other. But nonetheless, like I, I, I can't think of a, a better way of putting it. I suppose we go to the other extreme, call it the sort of happy, fun time rental joy box or something. But... <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that works. Well. Uh... <laughs> I think it would make people pay attention to it, maybe. Yeah, if only in the sort of what the fuck is they talking about kind yeah, of Yeah, absolutely. And meanwhile, we'll rename the green belt while they're not looking. Yeah, excellent. That's We've cool. got a plan. We'll sort this out between us. Excellent. Great stuff. Brilliant. Happy Funtime Rental Joy Box. Well, job done, guys. I think me and John have fixed everything. For more excellent insights into housing and many other a political thing, John can be found on Twitter at John Ellidge, which is J-O-N-N-E-L-L-E-D-G-E. And the City Metric site is at citymetric.com. Their new Skylines podcast is excellent and I'd highly recommend it. And this week has a very interesting, if quite terrifying, conversation about what might happen when the world runs out of water. Uh, very scary although my solution of course is if we all run out of water we should just have squash instead pretty easy again if you want to recommend someone i should interview on this podcast or perhaps you yourself are an expert in a political area and fancy a chat please let me know on twitter or at partly political broadcast at gmail.com Unemployment has fallen in the UK again. Woohoo! 60,000 more jobs. Quick, get someone to play the fanfare of joy, which will create yet another short-lived job to add to the numbers. But, no wait, hang on a minute. Stop that trombone. Labour say the Conservatives have fiddled the latest figures, so that a large amount of the people counted as employed are actually doing unpaid government-sponsored training or employment schemes. Which is kind of fancy chat for slave labour. I mean, and that's not really an unreasonable claim for the opposition to make, especially as back in 2013 the government relabeled employment to mean, well, not actually being paid for work, or sometimes not actually being in work at all. Not earning any money on workfare schemes that give you unpaid labour for two weeks of the year? It's okay, you're not unemployed. Self-employed but have no work? No worries, you are not unemployed. Kicked off benefits so no one has any records of you like a very low budget version of Jason Bourne? Not unemployed, just economically active. Which really sounds like the sort of title that should be given to someone who screws with numbers. You know, like the government. 
On top of all that, wage growth is now at its lowest since 2006. So really, all of this kind of excitement about unemployment is just a bit of clever rewording when it comes down to it. Aww, bombing the Middle East, wages to 2006 levels, it's almost like David Cameron is giving us an unwanted Tony Blair tribute. The Prime Minister said on Twitter that the new employment figures show that more people than ever have the security of a job, but global risks mean we must stick to our economic plan. That's the sort of security people want, eh? You know, a job that won't quite help them live their lives, meanwhile the services they need disappear to save money. It's a bit like securing yourself against a hurricane with a flimsy cardboard box with sails and a kite attached. Right, that is the end of this episode of Partly Political Broadcast. We'll be back next week with more stuff, because stuff will probably happen. If you have enjoyed it, please do tell everyone you've ever known, some people you haven't ever known, and maybe even some people that don't exist and you've just made up. I mean, I'll be honest, as long as they can download and listen to this, I don't even mind if they're mythical. I'm a nice guy. Also, if you are on iTunes, please do give us a review on there, um, preferably a nice one, but right now, I'd sort of be happy if you just wanted to type buttress several times, because it is a funny word. <laughs> buttress. Find us on Twitter at ParpolBro, on Facebook at ParpolBro, or email at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or, if you like, you could shout at me via my own website, Facebook and Twitter, but that would require you to spell my name. Here's a tip. Try throwing random vowels into Google. Eventually it will say, Did you mean Tin and Dooyeb? Total win. This week's episode is brought to you by the numbers 60,000, but some of those were letters that I've reclassified to make me look better. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.